This week on Dig Me Out. Even though this is the greatest Canadian album of all time, according to the readers of Chart Magazine, uh, I would not say so. Uh, yeah, let's calm down a little bit. Tim and Jay review, twice removed by Sloan. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me as always, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 188 of season four, and we are heading north of the border to a city known as Halifax to check out a band called Sloan. Jay, I'm not sure I know been... where that's at. Um, well, look it's, that in, up right now. it's in Nova Scotia. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know that. Uh, and actually, Sloan really... have relocated to Toronto, so I believe they're a Toronto band. Oh, that's soft. Which is sort of like, you know, you start in Manchester and then you move to London if you, right. if you're for the English equivalent. Or um, or in, in the American equivalent would be you start in like Cincinnati and you move to New York City to Brooklyn, like the National, something like that. Uh, so it's Sloan. like almost Maine. Yeah. Uh, look on a map it's like near maine yeah it's it's pretty far east yeah yeah okay is, now is it, I got my it's not quite newfoundland but it's uh it's right. over there is it it's kind of an island it looks like maybe i don't remember my not geography i thought newfoundland was the island it's uh i'm sorry it's like a what do you call it a peninsula, peninsula? where it's got three sides yes. of water yes excellent Fifth grade geography coming back into play. <laughs> Jay Sloan, is this a band that you're familiar with? I am, indeed. I am not that familiar. I, I've listened to, you know, the, the well-known albums from the 90s, that ones that we either had in the studio or that people suggested, like um, One Chord to Another, uh, Navy Blues. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not a band that I've actually kept up with. I haven't listened to any of their recent releases in the 2000s, and I really don't know them that well. Um, mm-hmm. And I probably should. I probably should be all over this band. But I'm not quite sure why I haven't gotten into them. Uh, when did you first discover Sloan? Oh, God. I'm not quite, I don't know. Because uh, I have Smeared. But Which I don't remember first if record. I bought that. Yeah, I don't know if I bought that after. I may have been aware of that record when it came out and I got a little buzz. And then I think I rediscovered the band maybe around, I know, I don't know. I, I have one chord to another. I have Navy Blues. I have, I have a lot of these records. Sort of around the time of the original record, I think I lost track of them a little bit and then got into them again. Probably around one chord to another. Okay. Because when I... Started to uh, pay attention to him again. I remember Navy Blues, like Money City Maniacs. I remember in college that got a lot of buzz just because it was so different for them.
that's where I got back into them. That would have been 98. Right, right, 98. Yeah, this is a band that, uh, for some reason, I've just not connected with. So uh, we're going to explore that on this episode. reason why I picked them, two reasons. This album that we're reviewing, Twice Removed, came out in 1994, so it's 20 years. And they have a new record coming out this September called Commonwealth. Actually, comes out September 9th. So, twice the reason to check out Sloan, finally. Good time also now to get in a little history of the band. History of the band! So, Sloan formed in 1991, as I mentioned, in Halifax. Uh, was when Chris Murphy and Andrew Scott met at the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design. And they were soon joined by Patrick Pentland and Jay Ferguson. And that has been the lineup of the band for the entire time. They've added a keyboard player for uh, live performances, but it's been those four guys uh, for the entirety of the history of Sloan. So according to the, the website, the actual Sloan website, the band is nicknamed is named after the nickname of a friend named Jason Larson. Um, Larson was called Slow One by his boss, who was French, and when he said it with his French accent, it sounded like Sloan. So they named the band Sloan, and uh, Larson said, well, you can call the band Sloan, but you got to put me on the, fir- the cover of your first album, which they didn't. They actually put it on the cover of their first uh, EP, which is the Peppermint EP, and it came out on their own record label Murder Records. Uh, the following year, 92, the band released Smeared, the album you mentioned, Jay, on Geffen Records. Smeared. Their second album, which we're reviewing twice removed, came out in 1994. Geffen didn't particularly like the record, and they didn't really promote it. So although the album sold well in Canada that made almost no impact in the United States... Spin named it one of the best albums you didn't hear in 1994, and a 1996 Reader's Poll by Canadian Music Magazine Chart ranked it as the best Canadian album of all time. Whoa! Yes. Uh, Over they re- Gordon Lightfoot? They, re- they re-ran the poll in 2000, and it finished third behind mm. a, ba- a person named Joni Mitchell and her album Blue. Boring. And, and then uh, a guy named Neil Young and his album Harvest. However, in 2005, they reran the poll again, and it went back to number one, ahead of Blue and Harvest. <laughs> okay. So They're really decisive there. Yeah. So after they uh, released Twice Removed, the band went on hiatus and left Geffen. Um, they released one chord to another on their own uh, label, Murder Records. And in 1998, they released Navy Blues. They released their first live album, Four Nights at the pa- uh, Palace Royale, in 1998, or excuse me, 1999, and then studio albums Between the Bridges in 1999 and Pretty Together in 2001. Uh, in 2003, they released the album Action Pact, which was a concerted effort, I guess you'd say, to break in the U.S. market. They worked with producer Tom Rothrock, who has worked with the Foo Fighters, Moby, Beck, um... Gwen Stefani, Motorhead, Elbow, Poison, Elliot Smith. So it was a big time producer. That's my favorite record by them. Action Pact? Yep. Gotcha. Have you heard that one? I can't say that I have. If I would check that one out. Okay. 
Then they signed to Yep Rock Records for U.S. releases, and they put out their eighth album, Never Hear the End of It, in 2006, which contains 30 songs. In 2008, they released their shortest album, Parallel Play, and in 2011 released The Double Cross. As mentioned earlier, they're going to release their uh, new album, Commonwealth, in uh, September of this year. So this is a band that uh, they involve four members who all sing and all play instruments, or all play all instruments. Normally the band is uh, Murphy on lead vocals and bass. Pentland also on lead vocals, who plays lead guitar. Ferguson on rhythm guitar and Scott on drums. Now when Scott moves to guitar and sing his songs... Ferguson moves to bass and Murphy moves to drums. So it's a little confusing. It's Basically, different. from what I've read, except for two releases out of the, all the ones we've mentioned, every member has had at least two songs on every album. So that is the history and explanation of Sloan. If you would like to suggest an album for us to review, please visit our request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. We got quite a bit of Facebook feedback on this record. Uh, Ru- Scott Russell Hallgram says, good memories of this one. Stuart Simon says, may be of interest to Gavin. And then Gavin said, thanks, Stu. It's still a cracker record. That's a, a positive, I believe. Uh, Ryan Anz says, one of my favorite bands of all time and their best album. <clears throat> I might have a little disagreement with that one, Jay. Uh, Joe Royland says, love, love, love Sloan. Although I will admit that while very good, this is not necessarily my favorite album by them. I'll echo John Shayer's comments, which we'll get to, and also say that they've only gotten better with each subsequent release. Coax Me off this album, which was the big single, is absolutely great, though. The album did great in their native native country Canada, holding near legendary status there, but went virtually unnoticed in the States, which caused them to get dropped by Geffen Records. Still, that was probably one of the best things that could have happened to them, as major label interference would have only held them back, and they are better for its absence. So the comments that uh, John made were a really good record, though I thought they really hit their best stride on the One Chord to Another and Navy Blues albums. Hard to name another band with as much talent spread pretty evenly amongst all its members. Amazing Beatles and Beach Boys influences that never managed to sound like they were just ripping them off. Superb playing that never pushed the bounds of flagrant showmanship some killer guitar tones, deceptively crafty songwriting and lyrics, but always accessible, and they could pull this stuff off live. They set a damn high bar that was rarely equaled. And finally, Eric Grubb said, Sloan is one of the most consistently great bands still around. Label woes and bad deals have never stopped them from putting out enjoyable records. Two notes I want to um, mention on this uh, record. Uh, One is... There's a, the last song in the record is called I Can Feel It, and the female vocal is Jennifer Pierce from the band Jail, J-A-L-E, I think is I think that's how you pronounce it, is Jail. And then um, the first song, Pen Pales, is uh, the lyrics are actually taken from broken English fan letters that were written to Kurt Cobain. And when they signed to Geffen, apparently they got access to these. I don't know if they were like in the offices, in the mailroom at Geffen. But they went through the letters and stole some of the letters' content for lyrics for this song. And that's actually confirmed. I read an interview 
with the members of the band and um, Chris Murphy, and he confirmed it. So, who wrote the song? As far as credit is, the uh, primary songwriter. So, that's the uh, that's the Facebook feedback. That's the notes. That's the history. That's everything we need to know about Sloan. Let me put it to you this way, Jay. Instead of doing a track by track, or even doing a what I liked, what I didn't like, mm. I want to try something different. I'm going to throw something at you un, unprepared. All right, let me get in my stance. Get in your stance. Get ready right. for this. I'm ready. I'm ready. I want you to sell me on Sloan's Twice Removed. <laughs> well, okay, that's assuming that I like it. You're the one that picked the record. I know, but I know you're a bigger fan of this band than I am, or you have more knowledge. Well, let's start with that. Um, Is this a record that you think you could sell? Um, I think it's harder than some of the others. Um, in the catalog, it's not as... Um, it's not as power pop as some. It's not as like, um, I don't know, what do you call what Beck does? Like kind of a alternative quirky pop. It's not, some of their records yeah. are like that. It's not as hard rock as something like Action Packed. So it's a little, I think this, to me, this record's a little bit more difficult to sell than some of their others. Their first record is very, um, very indie sounding. It's got some stuff that almost sounds shoegazer-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot fuzzier. So I think that has a, a little easier sell to it. So um, this one's a little bit trickier. I think there's, um, I think half of this record, or a little over half, is pretty cohesive and holds together. And there's, I think, another half that's I still don't even quite get. A couple of the songs on here and sort of where they're going. But um, the other half that does work, I think it's pretty, pretty compelling. Why do you think you've been um, so distant with this band? Considering how they said they tend to be, you know, darlings of musicians and college radio folk, and how, and, and I mean, pr- you practically grew up in Canada. That's true. I, I just I grew up just in, in the outskirts of Canada, known as Buffalo, New York, and uh, a lot of Canadian artists do well there. I'm a particular fan of uh, you know the Tragically Hip and Rush and those yeah. sorts of bands. Um, so why I do you think, think you never dug your claws into this one? Well, I wasn't living in Buffalo when Sloan was gaining momentum i was i was at college and uh, i really wasn't into power pop and i think that this is a band that's drawing from you know the raspberries and cheap trick and the and big star and obviously the beatles mm-hmm. uh so they didn't necessarily i wasn't necessarily into that at that point so they probably slid by at that time now why i haven't you know found myself being interested in, in really getting into them I, I think that there's a couple reasons, and I, I'm going to say that I agree with you. I think like half this record is really, really good, and the other half kind of leaves me perplexed. And I think it's because uh, of two reasons. I don't particularly like the production on the record. It's a little hmm. too like thin and a little too quiet. Uh, when I okay. think of you know power pop in, in what I like, I, I think of a lot more volume. And even when I'm thinking of like the, you know, the when the Jayhawks do their harmonies and stuff like that, or when we went back to that Velvet Crush record, like they can get loud and they can get kind of dirty at points. And I didn't feel like like there's a couple songs where you know they do turn up the distortion and they get some. I'm thinking of like Snowsuit Sound. There's a cool distorted yeah. bass on that song. Thank you. 
some of the coolest dynamics on the record mm-hmm. um but i feel like even though there are some really good harmonies and either though there's some really good lyrics it never really reaches the heights in terms of a great chorus in the way mm. that i think of like you know i want to hear like the raspberries go all the way or big stars back of a car or mm. you know something like that i want to hear that big anthemic power pop chorus and i never really mm. get that on this record they're completely fine isolated individual songs and the record as itself is okay but it just never reaches the heights that i want it to and i think that that's it leaves me a little cold in that sense right yeah it is weird to have um you know i guess a power pop band i guess in the most general sense if you're going to categorize them they're they're certainly melodically oriented and and drawing a lot from those types of influences it's weird to have a band like that who um is a little resistant to the chorus uh, i'll say um there's actually a couple songs on here that don't really even have them right i'm thinking of like people of the sky it's sort of like a a repeating verse over like they repeat it different ways but they never resolves to a to a you know a real chorus Mm-hmm. Um, and even though melodically it's it's really nice and well done and it's got a nice full band sound um to your production point it's you know one of the songs where i think it does sound big and full on an innocent trip how can one ruin so much of a- They are very restrained on this record, you know, and they do that from time to time. That's what, kind of what I'm getting into in their whole catalog. Is that there's albums where they're they're a lot more restrained than there's others where they really, you know, they dig into the guitars and just go all out. Um, this is one where it's it's more a little bit more on the restrained side, and I think some of these songs in particular could use a little bit more volume and a little bit more energy. Yeah, the power the the chorus thing. I think getting back to that, I think one of the better ones is probably "Coax Me." Mm-hmm which was the single. Uh, funny thing about that song is I really like, I like that tune a lot. It's kind of built on this, the verse is uh, kind of a Tom Phil part and this really chimey um, 
picking guitar part and shifts into this upbeat chorus with a shaker and you know pretty good pretty good hook there in the chorus it didn't dawn on me until now when i listened to it is that uh it, it's a lot like fleetwood max uh go your own way like if you listen <laughs> to the is. dynamics of that it's um it's pretty much the same idea let's say <laughs> Uh, and it didn't, it did not hit me until I was just this afternoon as I was making my notes on it. I was like, man, this is reminding me a lot of something. And they kick into that chorus and the shaker comes in and I'm like, it just hit me all of a sudden. You know, I think you read some Facebook feedback and you said, uh, somebody mentioned that, you know, they're obviously influenced by a lot of bands. They do a really good job of not showing that. You know, mm-hmm. you'll hear little things here and there, like track one pen pals, I kind of get like a Paul McCartney feel on the bass. And you may hear, a, you know, a harmony that's reminiscent of somebody else, but they do a pretty good job of doing the power pop thing, but doing it in their own way. And that's, you know, that's a hard thing to do. I think. You know, there's a lot of bands that do it that end up sounding, you know, really generic. And uh, they, they kind of, like, they're kind of able to uh, to pull that off. And, man, they got a lot of, they got a lot of records. They've been doing a long time. Uh, maybe that's a result of having four songwriters. But, uh, yeah, I think that's uh, one of the best things about the band. Well, I think one of the things that, I was surprised as going in is knowing that there's four songwriters and not feeling like there, there was a disjointedness between the songs. Like they have a very consistent sound. And I mean, I'm other than, um, the drummer, Andrew Scott, his voice sounding a little bit different than, um, everybody else. Mm -hmm. I didn't really feel like it was, there was that much of a difference even in their vocal quality from song to song, um, but definitely not in terms of the quality of the song or even the style of the song, which is pretty remarkable. You find four guys who all have sort of the same, you know, uh, sort of ideology in terms of songwriting and, and what sort of influences are going to play in so that, they're, you know, they're all writing. It's not like you're getting one guy who's writing metal songs or one guy who's writing, you know, pop songs. Right. Like they all clearly have a similar background with their own sort of unique influences but 
they're able to bring it together so that it forms this pretty cohesive sound throughout the record, um, mm-hmm. which is it's kind of shocking um, when you think about you know we just had a discussion about two singer bands and how they can diversify mm-hmm. between a, in an album you know this is a four singer band four songwriter band and this is very consistent yeah i agree it's um i mean I like the beatles in that way um they, they may even had more differentiation between individual member songs um, yeah absolutely than, than this band uh, and this is a band that you know i am familiar with a lot of the records but i've always found them to be hit and miss and hot and cold uh even within a record you know there, there, I don't think there's a other than action packed. I don't think there's another record where I really consistently love it from front to back. Um, I'll end up liking half of it or three songs or loving two songs or you know what I mean, and and being pretty apathetic to a bunch of the the, the other material. And I don't know. I would have to do some more research into the songwriting and the vocals and see if there's a correlation there. If I'm like, you know, more. Um, uh, inner, you know, more I connect better with one of the songwriters in the band or something, you know, and that's why it's parts of the records I don't respond to as well. But I've never, I've never felt it's that, um, that it's that obvious, you know. I think there's a lot of records where we've, when you've got that going on, you can tell right away, you know, when somebody else, uh, when there's a split between the songwriting, who wrote what, and mm-hmm. it's a big difference between the vocals. I don't even think their voices are that different, you know. I think you, right. One of them has a little bit of a higher voice. Uh, one of them has, you know, a particular way of phrasing things that you, you pick up on. But other than that, they all kind of seamlessly kind of flow, with, you know, into each other. They do some great harmonies. That's something mm-hmm. kind of I really wish they did more of on this record. You know, when they really hit them, it's, it elevates the songs so much. And then there's some other spots where they could really use them. You know, the lead, the lead vocal even be, um, it'll be kind of, uh, I'm trying to find a good example here. Uh, almost well I think pen pals is, is is a good example of like it gets almost drony and not formed enough you know what I mean it doesn't have enough inflection or um, the melody isn't quite refined yet it sounds a little loose in some of the songs some of the weaker songs bells on uh, comes to mind Part of me wonders if 
you know, more harmonies would help sharpen that up a little bit. Um, I know I definitely in my notes here made a, made a note that, you know, the songs where they just, um, they tighten up and just get a little bit sharper with what they're doing are the ones that I respond to better. And the ones where they're looser, uh, you know, I don't respond to as well. Like I Hate My Generation, like the intro of that and the melody of that, it uh, took me a while to even kind of get what's going on there. You yeah. Know, it just sounded like a little rough and almost demo-ish and they're conflicting between there's like two singers trying to do c- counter melodies and uh, there's a guitar part that doesn't quite fit with them and then it shifts all of a sudden into this chorus that doesn't quite make sense and there's a couple songs sprinkled throughout the record that are they're a little bit like that for me. Yeah, I also had a trouble with I Hate My Generation. I thought the chorus, once it got to the chorus, then it sort of took off. But before you get there, it's pretty rocky and it doesn't help yeah. that the, you know, the, the rhythm section is contributing to that um, as well. You can't really like lock down what's going on. Now, one of the, the things I did want to highlight that I liked was um, Patrick Pentland, who plays lead guitar. Uh, mm-hmm. His Two of his tracks, Worried Now and I Can Feel It, are, I think are two of my favorites on the record. I like the mm-hmm. turn of phrase um, in Worried Now that he uses in the chorus. It's something like, you told me not to worry about it, but I'm worried now. Like I thought that was just kind of a clever phrase, taking it sort of something that's typical and playing off of it. And then uh, and I can feel it. I liked his... It's it's a different feel from the rest of the record with the acoustic mm-hmm. guitar, and, it, and I like the female vocal on that track. really well uh with his vocal but then he I, those were two of my favorite songs but then one of the songs that i liked the least was loosens track six um it just bored me that, really that, really yeah did you like that one i got sucked a little bit into the melancholy of it you know um i like the piano i dig when they do piano stuff in general in this band it goes on a little long of the slow songs it's I thought was one of the better ones. Um, I do agree. Worried now is is a great one of you know probably top two or three songs on this record. It's sharp. It's everybody's working together. The vocals and the guitar are really synced up on that one. Um, everybody's kind of in it for the song. Great harmonies on that one. And then yeah, I can feel it. Is a cool like um, it's kind of got like a sunshiny kind of music bed to it. Mm-hmm. But there's a, a little bit of a darkness in the way that the the vocal um, is approached and has a somber kind of note to it, which is a nice mix to me. You know, I think 
if you just listen to the music of that song, it could have been really easy to have done something vocally on it that was a little bit more fun and it wouldn't have worked for, as well. It would have kind of been silly. It's just a nice combo of uh, light and dark on that song. That's uh, was a little bit unexpected. It's a nice it's a nice album closer, too. Yeah. Yeah, I like that they closed with that rather than something that was slow. And like if they had closed with Before I Do, I would have been disappointed because I think that mm-hmm. that's also a song is a, it's like two minutes too long. It's like it's seven minutes long. And I don't I don't yeah, want this band yeah. ever going to seven minutes. Yeah, I agree. Um, what do you think of Deeper Than Beauty? It's the one. It's just a guitar, drums, there's no, and vocal. There's no yeah, bass. there's no bass. Uh, I was a little. I mean, that was a little weird. It's an okay song. It sounds like a demo. And it sounds thin. Again, that's a word they came up yeah. earlier. Without that well, bass. No bass and yeah. I don't know why there'd be no bass. Like, I mean, do I have to break up my bass and play along to appreciate <laughs> it? It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit of a missed opportunity. I mean, if they're just going for an album song here to just break things up, I suppose it's it's valid in that regard. But I think the song is actually better than that. And um, it's vocally, especially in the chorus, it's a little different than some of the other songs. It almost has like a uh, Smith's or Morrissey kind of vibe to it, like the way he's delivering those lines. Um, And I really just wish they would have brought the rest of the band in at some point. Um, It really could have, it could have been a cool, like live, loud song too, you know, maybe keep the tempo the same, but really like use some heavy guitars. um, Yeah. Yeah. just let it get noisy, but have that melody um, through it. Like as, as it sits, it's kind of just a filler. Yeah, it's which is unfortunate because I think it's better than that. That that riff that he's playing totally lends itself to like at some point, like a minute into the song, kicking out of the distortion pedal, having the bass come in at the same time, and just like mm-hmm. rocking out. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't happen, and it's like mm, this this is repetitive now. And now I'm just this, listening to the same guitar thing over and over again. I've always felt this band um, maybe struggle with the whole loud rock thing. There's times when they really embrace it, you know, and there's other times where it seems as though they're actively trying to not to avoid it. I don't know. I haven't read enough interviews with them to, to know if that's the case or something they ever talk about. But just being a little uh, familiar with as familiar with the catalog as I am, it just seems like sometimes that they... Um, they purposely don't. And then there's other times where they make a concerted effort too. And it'd be nice if they just blended it a little bit more. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't need them to go like Nirvana on it and, you know, kick it <clears> and have this like <throat> wall of guitar. And in, in that interview that I read, there was a mention of purposely turning the volume down on this record because the first record was louder and mm-hmm. everybody was making loud records. And they were like, you know what? We're just going to get lost in the shuffle if we make another loud album so let's try doing something more restrained he also yeah. mentioned about having some hearing problems at the time because of the the volume mm. it was starting to affect his hearing so you know that was also part of the reasoning yeah but i think on this particular track deeper than beauty that would have been a an opportunity to not necessarily you know go smashing pumpkins on it or anything like that but just Bring the second guitar in with some distortion. Have the bass come in. Yep. You know, maybe that's cliche. Maybe that's predictable. But when I hear the song, that's what I want to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's 
I understand, you know, this band is, they're bringing, just by what they do, they bring something new to the table. You know, they don't have to try that hard. They don't have to premeditate like, oh, we can't do that because, you know, we'll sound like somebody else. They're just one of those unique groups that everything they are doing naturally is, you know, their their own thing. It's not derivative. So um, it's something they really, if they were thinking about, didn't need to because I don't think it was an issue. So let's get to a, let's do an overall rating on this record. I feel like we're in the same ballpark. Um, for myself, on the rating scale that we use, Worthy Album, Better EP, Decent Single, I'm at an EP, um, even though this is the greatest Canadian album of all time, according to the readers of Chart Magazine, uh, I would not say so. Uh, yeah, uh, let's calm down a little bit. Right. <laughs> I don't um, even know that this is the best Canadian album that came out that year. How about that? Boom. Uh, oh, yeah? Is that our follow-up topic? Uh, I can I can Google that real fast, but I hadn't planned on it. <laughs> best best albums, Canadian albums of 1994. <laughs> best Canadian albums. <laughs> I'm Googling Canadian albums. You, Tell me what you okay. think, Jay. Yeah, while you Google that. Uh, oh, it's tough for me. Um, like I said, I, I think being honest, other than action-packed, right off the top of my head, and without, for you know, I, this is a band, too, I think, with most power pop of we've discussed in the past, it ages very well. Um, I think you get it. The more you mature <laughs> and the more uh, music you listen to, the better it gets, um, the more you appreciate it. So a lot of their catalog, I feel like I need to go back and revisit because um, I think I'll like it more than I have in the past. And I've liked it, you know, so I've liked it a good deal in the past. Um, so I think being fair, you know, up until this point, I would say almost all the records I would give an EP rating to and not a full album rating. This one, I'm at six. Um, I could easily be swayed on a couple to get me to eight. You know, that's technically a record. Uh, even at 12 songs, this album's only 44 minutes long. So it's hard to say that uh, for only 44 minutes, it, there's not a whole lot on here that I couldn't tolerate. So I'm going to give it a full record. I'm, I'm with you on the on the six. But I'm I'm at an EP, just because I think that the other half of the record is just not up to par. Now, Jay, uh, I will I'll, I'll mention that uh, the Hard Rock Album of the Year in 1994 in Canada was I, was I Mother Earth's Dig. <laughs> it beat out Rush's counterparts. Oh man, good grief! Uh, the the um. The best album from 1994 was Harvest Moon by Neil Young, which is a very good record. Mm-hmm. It beat 12 Inches of Snow by Snow, which features the song Informer. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But here's this the thing. This is definitely better than Dig. The, you know, the in terms of Canadian albums, the Tragically Hips Fully Completely came out that year. I would pick Fully mm-hmm. Completely over this record. I think Fully Completely is probably one of the top three tri- hip albums for when we get into a hip discussion. <laughs> oh, boy. That's I've been avoiding be... that one. Well, yeah, I know. It's going to happen eventually, but... Why haven't you picked them? I don't even know where to start with them. I don't even know. That'd be a, that's a long discussion to have. And, uh, I, and they haven't responded to my emails. 
about getting on the show. So, but other albums that came out that year, there were, um, where are we? Oh, this is the Juno Awards, or they give a lot of these. Uh, the Tea Party had an album out that year. The Odds, mm. Junk House, Blue Rodeo, Moxie Fruvis, the Jeff Healy Band. I mean, that Mo- to- Moxie Fruvis, that's a band that name I've seen all t- a lot, and I'm, I'm always just like, A, I don't know how to pronounce that, and B, I have no idea what that's about. Sarah McLaughlin, Bare Naked Ladies, Celine Freakin' Dion, Atlanta Miles, a little black velvet for you. I think you're segueing into my my idea of a brief topic. Okay. Um, and, and we can leave this open for maybe feedback because I don't think we're going to be able to be definitive with it. Was the 90s the best decade for Canadian, let's say, commercial rock? Well, that's tough because in the 2000s, you have, I mean, for commercial, yes. Artistically, I mean, in the 2000s, you have like the new pornographers and broken social scene, Nico Case, uh, the Arcade Fire. Mm. Um, You have, I mean, there's quite a bit of Canadian firepower in the 2000s. Now, you put that up against Our Lady Peace and Alanis Morissette and... You know, uh, so what did what did the '80s look like? I can't think of any in the '80s. Neil Young. Every decade from the did, '60s did on. Did Neil gets, Young make is, music in the '80s? Yeah, he made that um, "This Notes for You" album. And he, oh, did, uh, he did. He did make um, that robot album. He made the robot album, <laughs> which I don't remember what that's called. Uh, yeah, he made some bad records in the '80s. He was in a fight like, with his record label. Oh, Loverboy, Canadian. Oh, yeah, Loverboy, Triumph. Yeah. Uh, would they be 80s or would they be 60, uh, 70s? No, they're, de- they're definitely 80s. April Wine, but that's like late 70s, I think. Not a ton about- Honeymoon Suite, they had a hit in the 80s. Well, I mean, Rush is an 80s band. Brian well, Adams. Yeah, they've, they've never gone away. Yeah, Brian oh, Adams. Yes. I Corey, about him. Corey oh, Hart, Glass Tiger, Aldo Nova. Oh, my goodness. So maybe the 80s are the commercial peak for Canadian crossover music into the United States. Is this we're talking about, right? We're not we don't care how many albums they sell in the in the in Canada. We it's how well you do the United yeah, States. Yeah, yeah, crossover. I meant crossover, yeah. Yeah. So, maybe it's we're the Americans, 80s. Everything is about us. Right, exactly. I mean, Brian Adams was a frigging, you know, juggernaut. And you back that up with Loverboy yeah, oh, yeah. and Corey Hart. Yeah. I mean, there you go. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Let's open it up to the to the listeners. What's the best decade for the commercial success, I guess, U.S. and worldwide of Canadian music? Is it 80s? Is it 90s? Or is it 2000s? Um, I don't know. I mean, Arcade Fire sell a lot of records. So they could, they could be up there. You could put the 2000s up there. I'm sure I'm forgetting many artists. So we'll leave yeah, it up to you. Kinda... Chime in. Yeah, all right. On the Facebook page, over on the, I, I uh, like the Canadian music. I'm gonna say, looking through all three, thinking about all three of those decades, there's a lot of bands in there I I, I like, mm-hmm. or at least, or at least of respect. You know what I mean? There's like a, there's some, you know, there's bands that you might not love them, but you respect them. And I think a lot of those bands, I, if I don't love them, I at least have some, some sense of respect for. Whereas a lot of, there's a lot of stuff American music that. Are American bands that I don't love and I don't respect. So, 
Well, there you go. And of course, if you want to uh, do your research, you can go ahead and, and Google, you know, 90s albums in Canada or 80s albums in Canada and you'll find. Like we are plenty. right now. Like we are as we're <laughs> recording this. Because we don't prepare. <clears throat> as, you, as you can hear my my clicking. Click, click, click. Click, click. Of course, I want to remind everybody, please head on over to our digmeoutpodcast.com website. If you'd like to request an album for us to review and check that out, throw us some shekels so we can keep this podcast a rolling debt free. And uh, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. Whether or not you listen on iTunes, you could be listening on Radio IO or Stitcher or many of those other locales. And we appreciate you checking us out. And uh, that's it. Our, our roll through the 90s continues next week, and I think, Jay, let me double-check my notes here, but I believe that uh, next week we'll also... So we covered Sloan this week. They have a new album coming out next week. We're doing The Rentals, and they have a new album coming out. So, hmm. and uh, we're going to dive into their debut record. Return of the Rentals, which, of course, was Matt Sharp from Weezer. And uh, we might talk about uh, a topic connected to, uh, you know, people leaving big bands and going off on their own and how well they do. We've already, Mm -hmm. we kind of did that with the Sebado one, but we didn't really dive into it. But that's another example. So that's it. Sloan is in the books. We're out. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Oh,